Well, good morning. So, thanks, Kill. I appreciate you, brother. I want to say Merry Christmas so bad, but we got to wait. We got to wait. It's almost there. I know we're all so excited, and we're gearing up sermon-wise, too. Um, on that note, I want to just invite you, and I want to invite you to just encourage you to invite anyone that you know that's either looking for a place to worship tomorrow night or not looking. Um, I've invited some people this morning that might not have been looking, but um, one of them's here, and, and uh, some others, I hope, come tomorrow. But uh, tomorrow night, 5 o'clock, it's going to be a shorter gathering, Christmas Eve service. We won't have anything on Christmas Day, so tomorrow's our, our whole kit and caboodle. It's going to be, I think, first ever Sojourn Y. We're a church plant, and so we have churches kind of around the city. And I think it's first ever Sojourn Wide live nativity with our children. We're going to be doing a dry run right after the gathering today. So if you want to, if you want to stay and spectate and grab a cup of joe and watch the kids run around, That'd be great, but tomorrow night at five, it's just gonna be an hour, it's gonna be shorter and sweet, and I mean, Christmas, if, if it's about anything, it's about children. It's about the humility of our God who became a child, and so there's a certain, there's a certain appropriateness to, to tomorrow night, so please come. It's gonna be a party, a celebration of our Lord and of the community that he's making here and what he's called us to, so that's five o'clock tomorrow. Please, please come. Please bring a neighbor or a coworker. Okay. Well, we are in, um, before, before I jump, well, we are in the, for some of you that haven't, haven't been here, a little context, we're just walking through Luke 1 this morning, um, this whole month actually of, of Advent, and then in January, we're going to start in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis. So we're just doing all of Luke 1. Tomorrow night, I'll be by one of our kids, uh, Luke 2, the first part of Luke 2 will be read, the Christmas story, Jesus' birth. Um, and then I'll talk for 15 minutes or so just on, on that. But we are finishing Luke 1 today, and it's on the birth of John the Baptist. And what, what Luke has been doing is he gives us the most, in, most in-depth look at uh, the, the birth of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the announcement by Gabriel, the messenger of God, the angel of God to Mary, the announcement to uh, Mary's uh, cousin, Elizabeth, and her pregnancy and then her birth six months previous of John the Baptist. So Luke gives us a lot of detail more than anybody else, more than any of the gospel writers, and he lines up John and Jesus and Elizabeth, John's mom, and Mary, uh, Jesus's mom, and he just does this for the first three chapters, and he compares and contrasts how John is the way maker, and he is special, and he is a prophet, but Jesus is going to be God the Most High come to visit us and come to save us. And so we're gonna look at the birth of John this morning and we're gonna look at his father who through unbelief was made mute, having his mouth opened and the first words that he utters being filled with the spirit and he prophesies about his son and about the one that his son will make a way for, our savior, Jesus Christ. So um, before we jump into the first point, I just want to reflect a bit personally on this whole Prophecy of Zechariah is beautiful, and it's, it's riven with Old Testament scripture. And it's full of this image of darkness and light. And he's really saying, we, were, we have been sitting in darkness. And that when I think about darkness, and I think I've mentioned this before, the thing that grips me most about darkness is when I was, I was caving or spelunking a long time ago, and we got into the bowels of the earth, way down into the tunnels, stalagmites, stalactites everywhere. We all had headlamps. And at one point, if you've done any caving 
and you had a guy, the guy probably did this, turn off your headlamps. All of you turn off your headlamps, and it is harrowing is the only word I can think of. Because not only is it scary, because without, there's, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's frightening, but it's utterly disorienting. Or I almost said disorientating, because that's how they say it in Britain, and I, was, I lived in Britain for four years. But it's disorientating or disorienting. You don't know, after a few seconds, you're not even sure what direction is up. And it is, it, you, you literally feel you are powerless. There's no way without light you're going anywhere. You can't do anything. And that's what John says about the condition of him and his people here. He says, we've been sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. And so we, we get to look at, uh, at what he says this morning together. I'm gonna start with, my first point is just a cry piercing the silence. And that's the first part of the text that, that Kale read for us here. Um, verses 57 through 66, a cry pierces the silence. Um, and again, a little bit more background here. Zechariah, he was a priest ministering in the temple and preceding his ministry, there was 400 years. There were the prophets of old and Moses and the law and the wisdom literature, what we know as the Old Testament, God speaking. But then there were 400 years, scholars refer to it as the intertestamental period, the time between the Old and the New Testament, where God was just silent after the prophet Malachi and some of the histories were finished. He was just silent for four centuries. So go back to, in our country, to Jamestown, 1607 or something. Imagine that long, that long ago is the last time God communicated with us. It's been four centuries of sign. God is the word, he's a speaking God. So when God is silent, it's not a good sign. So John, excuse me, Zachariah is ministering in the temple, doing his faithful duty. And God, God sends his messenger Gabriel to John in the temple, just to the right side of the altar of incense, right in front of the curtain of the Holy of Holies which nobody but the high priest enters once a year. And he says, that's all about to change. God is speaking now. He's gonna send you a son in your old age. And John, Zechariah, excuse me, doesn't believe fully. He has trouble believing what Gabriel is saying. And so he goes dumb. He cannot speak. His mouth is closed until John is born. Um, there's good evidence for the fact that he was Likely also, I'll use the word likely instead of probably, but he was likely also deaf, so struck deaf and dumb. Just a couple points on that. The Greek word for mute, so the New Testament was written originally in the Greek. The Greek word for mute in Luke one twenty two that he's, he will be made mute because of his unbelief until John's born, so for nine months. Um, it can also mean or include deafness. Also, if you notice in this text here, his neighbors signed to him about what the baby's name is gonna be. So he, he's just... If he's just not able to speak and he is able to hear, them signing to him wouldn't make a lot of sense. Now, you can say they were just kind of, sometimes if somebody can't speak, you can also think they can't hear. And so maybe in their frenzy and their excitement, they were signing unnecessarily. But there's more evidence that he could have well been deaf also. And then finally, if he weren't deaf, they would have assumed that they had just asked Elizabeth, his wife, what's the baby's name gonna be? His name will be John. Then they turned to him. Hey, what's the baby's name gonna be? Right, so... Um, and then they're shocked when he says John. So they probably wouldn't have been if they could have thought, if they would have thought, well, he would have just heard his wife and they've talked about it. No, he writes down on a tablet, not his name will be John, but what? His name is John. It's decided. That's what the Lord has said. I'm being obedient. And I just want to pause here and say, so this is the scene. Um, obedience alone. 
Obedience is what opens his mouth. He obeys the word. It's not a family name. It's not a name he's come up with. It's a name he's been given. And he's seen his wife, his wife that's out of age, that's out of the age of childbearing, grow with a child. He's seen this miracle take place in front of his eyes for nine months, and he's been mute, and he's been silent. And out of obedience, he writes, his name is John. And it is often there are blessings from the Lord that we can only receive through obedience. There is no other way to receive them. And oftentimes we know what God is calling us to, but we continue to try to learn and learn and learn without simply obeying what we know to be true from his word, things that he has clearly articulated. A lot of times it's not, the problem isn't that we don't know enough, is that we, we aren't acting on and obeying what we do know from the Lord, and I'm guilty of that as well. So just notice that it is, as George MacDonald said, it's on him who obeys that the day star arises in his heart. Obedience is the soul of knowledge. It's the doorway to the blessing of God. So I just, that's sort of a side note, but that's what we see here. Um, before Gabriel uh, came to John's father, Zechariah, again, there were 400 years of silence. I can't accentuate that enough. Um, think about it, too, in, light, in, in this light. After those 400 years of silence, there's a, there's a promise through Gabriel that that's, that 400 years is ending through John, the way maker to Messiah, who will be the salvation of God's people. He will be God's word among us. But after those 400 years of silence, there's 40 weeks more of silence from Zechariah, at least, right? As his wife grows with child, with John. So his silence, his 40 weeks mirror the 400 years of silence um, from, his, from God to his people. And then the first cry to break that four century silence in his family isn't him, it's his son the prophet of the Most High. So it just sort of accentuates even more the role of John, that he speaks, he cries out as the way maker for Messiah, even before his father can rejoice. His father has to write down eight days later during the circumcision on a tablet, his name is John, and his mouth is open, and he gives this song that we're about to read that's called um, the Benedictus in Latin, which we'll get to. So he just starts praising God. So um, he also, John also in the womb, six months in the womb, three months before he's born, is, is showing signs. Before he can even speak in his own darkness, in the darkness of the womb, he is moving around when Mary comes, as Paul wonderfully preached last week, into Elizabeth's presence. And when, when Jesus is in Mary's womb and when John is in Elizabeth's womb, even then John senses the presence of his maker, his redeemer, the one for whom he is called to make a way and he starts moving and he starts rejoicing and then Elizabeth freaks out and, and, and says her thing, okay? And so even then, in his movement and in his cry, John is fulfilling his purpose. Um, and God is using the silence of Zechariah in his sovereignty to underscore this point. So Zechariah has these 40 weeks um, of silence with this promise ringing in his ears, this vision of of the angel giving him this promise in his mind's eye. Think about it. He's able to reflect for nine months or 40 weeks on what he's seen. He watches as his wife, his old wife beyond childbearing years, um, grows with child. And he's processing this and he's unable to articulate. He's unable to speak, possibly unable to hear as well. And so by the time that we get this song, he's like a bottle of soda shaken up for nine months. And so this song... When his mouth is open, it's just like, 
or like, you know, when you, maybe a better illustration, when, you, when uh, somebody wins a Stanley Cup or whatever, you know, World Series, and they have this huge thing of, of champagne, and, and they just, un- they shake it and uncork it, and it just shoots everywhere. That's John. It's nine months of anticipation plus 400 years, 40 weeks and 400 years of silence. And then God is about to do something amazing in part through his son. And he just explodes with praise. And you know, the thing that he explodes with, again, it's benedictus in the Latin, the first word, uh, blessed be the God of Israel, blessed, the word blessed. His first word is a word of praise. It's not a word about his son. I have a son! I'm really old and I have a son. I'm 80. He doesn't say that first. He gets to that. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't talk about himself. He just starts praising God. He just starts praising God. And an old commentator says this. He says, without doxology or praise to our maker, true religion is inconceivable. So there's a sense in which this is a microcosm of how we ought to be all the time, shaken up, contemplating the gospel of the fact that God became a weak and helpless child and lived every stage of our life and experienced everything we will ever experience and worse, tasted all that for us, such as his condescension. If we're not filled with praise, then we need to question whether or not we know the gospel and God at all. And we can, but let that, let, that question, if it mo- let that question honestly assess you and move you to a place. If it moves you to a place saying, I don't know God, don't let it fill you with guilt and walk away. You're in the right place. Come to know him by calling on the name of Jesus Christ whom he has sent, okay? Um, so without doxology, true religion is inconceivable. I, we had an old missions pastor in my seminary who used to approach people that he didn't even know, and he'd shake your hand and go, have you got the joy, brother? And his question, and he would do this with believers, but his question is, look, joy, if you don't have the joy as a Christian, I'm not saying, you're good, are you happy, happy? I'm not saying, is there always a smile pasted on your face? But are you filled with the deep abiding joy of a living God, knowing that he has brought you out of darkness and he has done everything necessary for you to be okay and more than okay, beloved and accepted forever? Um, he has broken your chains. If you don't have that joy, we need, it's, it, it ought to be a diagnostic for us to go, wait a minute, I'm, I'm called to joy. There, there's a joy. We don't gin it up. It's something that God pours into us uh, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, uh, it, uh, he said, it is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. I think that's what he meant by that. G.K. Chesterton, an even better quote, I think, joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. And um, I think that a joyless Christian, a a morose Christian, is an oxymoron, is an oxymoron. Um, So this alone, all this stuff is instructive, but what follows is perhaps more so. Again, I sort of touched on it, but you would think that this song would be about, one, either how great it is to be able to speak again, it's not what he says, or two, of something about his son, and it is something about his son, but the first thing in the lion's share of his song, if I can call it that, or his prophecy, is about the one that's not his son, that his son is going to make the way for, the one that's going to be born in six months. Um, and so his song, the Benedictus proper, verses 68 through 75, are about Jesus, about Jesus. Um, and notice what, before we get into the song itself briefly and then draw some application points, uh, notice what verse 67 says, that Zechariah 
He's filled, it doesn't say he just, he just um, extemporizes. No, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he opens his mouth and he, begin, and he speaks this prophecy. So what he says, even though a lot of it, as Paul preached last week with another song, even though a lot of this hasn't yet come to pass, it's on the edge, on the brink of coming to pass, um, he's filled with the Spirit and what he speaks is true. It's as good as done because it's God's own word and it's going to happen. God has brought salvation. The horn of salvation, the power of God is coming through this child, okay? So what he speaks is as good as done. Um, Moving on from a cry piercing the silence, let's look at point two, just a light breaking into the darkness. This is really the, uh, the heft of this prophecy, a light breaking into the darkness, verses 67 through the end, through 79. If you notice, just we're gonna skip through just a few things. We're not gonna do a deep dive into any of this, but the language um, in this prophecy is one of Israel's estate. Um, In verse 79, he talks about, at the end of the song, he talks about Israel, God's people being in darkness. Again, think about that caving experience. Darkness ain't so bad if there's light, but that's not what he's saying. Darkness, darkness. You're disoriented. You don't know which way is up. You're afraid. You're utterly ineffective. And death is often described, and hell is often described both as darkness and as fire. Okay, so probably metaphors for just something that is utterly painful, incapacitating, and unraveling. Not only are they in darkness, but they're sitting in darkness. They're full of fear, verse 74. They're surrounded by enemies in need of um, salvation, being bought out of slavery, and in need of being saved. In other words, they're perishing, they're lost. This is the human, that's in 68 and 69. This is the human condition without our God who is light, who speaks and light breaks into darkness, being reconciled to us through our sin. This is what we make of the world because this is what we are on the inside apart from God and our sin rebellion. Um, And this is what Zechariah is sort of plowing into here. Darkness is a main thing. If Think about it just simply. If you don't have light, you don't have life. One of our members has a bumper sticker on his car that says, no farms, no food. I love that. So simple. City people need to see that, right? We were in the country recently, and you see all the plowed fields and the cotton and the other crops that are sort of the fields are fallow right now, but they're ready. And you think, thank God for that around the city on the edges. We have the Amazon factories and the igloo factories, and we have all this concrete and all this business in the city, but all that would come to a screeching halt if nobody grew food. Okay, real simple. No farms, no food. That's, I can get that. That's easy. No light, no life. Period. Bye-bye. You're done. We're all done. Okay? No light, no life. So think of light as life. Um, Zechariah, he, he takes, this is, again, this text is riven with the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit fills him. When the Holy Spirit fills you and comes on you and speaks through you, it, a lot of times he'll just speak his own word, the word of, because he's always spotlighting. Someone said last week, Paul, that the Holy Spirit, what he loves to do is put the spotlight on Jesus. So if, this, if this, Jesus is being glorified and spotlighted and, and delineated in all his glory and what he's done and his condescension and his salvation and his living for us and his dying for us and his rising for us and his reigning for us and his coming again to rescue us, the Holy Spirit's at work because Satan doesn't want any part of that, Okay. And in our flesh, we don't want any part of that. We want to be king. The Holy Spirit loves to spotlight the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, what's happening here is the Holy Spirit comes on him 
and uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is being spotlighted. Um, but he takes from Isaiah's prophecies of the coming Messiah, Isaiah 9-2, and he takes from other texts too, but um, he's full of the word of the Lord, and he, and he uh, from Isaiah 9-2, let me just read it, the people who walked, this is 700 years before Jesus, all three of these are prophesying Messiah to come. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, talking about when Jesus comes. It says he's gonna be, the first two verses say he's gonna be hanging around a light's gonna come, what? To the northern parts of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, where all the hillbillies and the Gentiles are. And the, the happening part is Jerusalem. That's where all the religious people, no, no. There's gonna be a light that's gonna come to the sticks up in Galilee, okay? Um, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah 42, six and seven. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. He's talking about his servant, the Messiah, Jesus. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Through Israel, yes, but for all people. Black, white, brown, male, female, everyone, any nation, all the nations, this Messiah is coming for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This Messiah is going to be someone who specializes in breaking into the hardest places, in shining light, in creating life and freedom, in breaking bonds. That's what he does. That's what he's gonna do. Isaiah 60, lastly, verse one through three. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Pulling back a little bit um, before we get to the, um, just sinking into this second point here about, about this sun and this Messiah and this light, um, reflecting on Zachariah's own condition for, for a, few, a few minutes, he himself, it seems, has been made to embody Zechariah himself, the, the, the father of John, the one who's prophesying here, seems to be an embodiment of sorts of the condition of Israel before Messiah comes, in darkness, okay, unable to speak. So he's preceded by 400 years of silence, as I've said, and then he hears a word that will, uh, that will break that silence and that will pierce that darkness, but he, he doesn't believe in that word. So, that, so he's made mute and possibly deaf, and so what is followed by that 400 years of silence is 40 more weeks, again, as I've said, of silence. He's unable to speak and probably even unable to hear. Um, all the while, his son, John, sits mute in darkness in a womb that was dead for 40 weeks. Um, so a deeper sign seems to be emerging. Let me, let me push back even beyond Isaiah um, for a minute into sort of a, 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 concaten, a sort of grouping of 40s in the Old Testament. So bear with me. Noah, think about Noah, um, the one who was given a promise and God said, I'm gonna redo everything. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe the slate clean, but I'm gonna save you and your family. The whole world is full of violence. He was put on a boat. The door was shut by God himself. And what? Rain came down in torrents and came up from the earth. And the whole earth was filled with a deluge, with a flood, um, for 40 days and 40 nights, it rained. And out of that, days and weeks and months later, Noah came, he stepped out of the ark with his family, 
and God gives a second commission to Noah that's very much like the one he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. So there was death, death, pretty much total death, but God saved a remnant, and then from that, a recommissioning and life, a new creation. Think about Moses, fast forward, on Mount Sinai. He, he goes up to get the law for God's people who have just been brought through the waters, out of slavery, through the waters of death of the Red Sea, and he goes up on the mountain, and he essentially dies. Why? Symbolically. He doesn't eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights. He's up there in the presence of God, just essentially just symbolically dying, not eating or drinking for 40 days. He just sits there on his face in worship and then comes down with a way for God's people to live, to be a people, a word of life. There's a sense of recreation in this whole saga of God's people coming through the waters of death to a new land that God's gonna give them out of slavery, okay? So there's, a, there's 40 days there, uh, death and then new life and new creation. Think about Israel in that same area, in the wilderness, wandering for how long? 40 years, 40 years. And what happens to that first generation who didn't believe God's word? They die. The second generation is the one who comes into the promised land. So there's death and there's new life and new creation. And into that, they, they enter into a garden land. Think about that. It's like a, a new, a God's people, he puts them in a garden land, just like Adam and Eve. He gives them a word to obey, and he says, kick out the enemy through obeying my word. Does that sound familiar? It's a recreation event, okay? The 40 thing is a death and a new life and a new creation theme throughout the Bible. This 400 years of silence between the last prophet and John and then the Zacharias 40 weeks of silence, his son is silent in a once dead womb. Out of that comes what? New life, new life. Um, so this son, his son, John, will be a herald, not only of a Messiah who will bring light, but who will bring life and who will bring a new created order about. Do you see? This is, this is as big as it gets. This is why it's so absurd to be a Sunday Christian. To have Jesus take up just a piece of my life, to have him as somebody I heard said recently, but they were, they were doing well in saying this is not the way it should be. Jesus, he said, Jesus is not a priority for me. He's life. He's the creator. He has literally brought us back from the dead. He has begun a completely new order. And outside of him, there is no life. It's just darkness. It's just darkness. So let me just say, as a side note, if you're looking to any, and in our sinful self, we, we do this. We are constantly producing idols to worship. We are constantly running after other things, things other than God, the satisfier of our souls to fill us, to create life and light for us. They never, ever work out. At first, they taste sweet, but they never work out. But we keep going back and back. I just wanna say, stop and run to Jesus. He alone gives new life and creates something new that will never end. So back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, again, just to kind of wrap this idea up, I know it's a lot, but there's darkness over the face of the deep. First part of the Bible, we're gonna be there for weeks in January. There's nothing but God. And there's darkness, and there's, in a sense, chaos. There's emptiness and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And then it said, verse three of Genesis one, Genesis one, three. And, and God said, what? Let there be light. God's word pierces the darkness and he creates, okay? And that is what Zechariah is saying is happening here. This is Genesis 
2.0. It's that big of a deal. It's a bigger deal because redemption is going to happen. Our sins, the wrath of God that we have justly incurred for our sins and our rebellion, our separation from him, our hatred of him, what we've done to the earth, what we've done to our own souls, what we've done to other people, the demonic powers that have been rustled up through our rebellion, all of that God is going to take care of. He's going to pay the price for. He's going to bear through this Messiah, and he's gonna bring us light and life and peace. He's gonna guide our feet, as John, as Zachariah ends this song, into the way of peace through this Prince of Peace. Um, but I do wanna say that the magnitude of all this new creation that this son, this Messiah is gonna bring, uh, doesn't mean that God overlooks small things. He does not overlook small things. We can see that in this song. Quite the contrary, how is the, this miracle it's going to bring about a new order. How, does it gonna, how is it going to come to us? In the form of a tiny child, something we're going to celebrate more tomorrow night. A tiny, poor, he chose, we didn't choose how to be born, he alone did, and he chose to be born in a feed trough to poor parents. They couldn't even afford, at, his, uh, at the sacrifice for his eight-day circumcision, they couldn't even afford uh, a lamb. They had to buy a bird to poor parents. So he loves starting small. He loves the acorn that grows into the oak tree. He loves the poor and those who sit in darkness. He has a special heart for them. So take heart if that's you. Um, but Zechariah speaks this beautiful line about his son, John. He says, you, uh, you will be one who gives knowledge of salvation to God's people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And what Zechariah is doing is, again, he's plowing back into the Old Testament. It's a, it's a line that that is sort of like the uh, line that God gives for how he is, what he is like. Uh, when Moses in Exodus 33 says, I wanna see you, I wanna know what you're like. If you don't go with us, we're not going into that promised land. We're staying right here. You are our salvation. You are our life. You are our hope. God says, I will reveal myself to you, but from the back as it were, and I'm gonna cover you and put you in the rock. And how does he reveal himself? The first thing he says Here's what I'm really like. He says, it says, the Lord descended, Exodus 34, in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Um, that word merciful is really what Zechariah, and that shoots throughout the rest of the Bible. Over and over, the Jews say, this is what God is like. He has told us he's a God merciful and gracious. It can also be translated, he's compassionate. That word comes from the, the root word racham in the Hebrew, okay? The word that I just read to you, merciful, is rachom. You can hear the similarity. It's, it's one letter difference, racham. Uh, and it means womb. The, that's the womb of a mother. So the idea is there's nothing, there's no safer place. There ought to be no safer place, no place better for, the, for life to be created, to form. No place that's more tender than a mother's womb. And God made that, and he chooses to say, that's what I'm like. I'm full of that kind of tenderness. I, the great God, the almighty God, who creates and who's gonna start this process of recreation, I am tender. And it's the, in the, in the Greek, in the New Testament, it's the emotion that is most often ascribed to Jesus when he sees the suffering of the, his creation because of sin. 
People physically bent over, people spiritually, emotionally bent over, cowering full of fear from fears without and fears within, afraid to go there, afraid to open up and to show people and God what we're really like, afraid to even show ourselves what we're really like, the stuff that we have that we push down. When Jesus sees this, his number one response is to be filled with compassion is usually the way it's translated in the, in, the, in the English, but it means his guts are literally turned. His guts are grabbed, they're wrenched. He feels it in the gut when he sees you in darkness, in suffering. He has a heart, whether you're, um, whether you, when he sees those in need, whether spiritually or physically, whether starving or demon-possessed, shunned, sick, dying, or dead, or just plain lost, wandering, aimless. He's filled with this gut-wrenching compassion. Um, And so he enters our pain, and then he does something about it. A lot of times we have people that will sit by us and buy us a drink, and they'll enter, they'll come up right alongside of us. They're not high and mighty. They'll, They'll put their arm around us, and they won't judge us. Then we have people that can help us, but they'll often judge us. This God, our Jesus, this Savior, this Redeemer, this Son who's gonna visit us from on high, this light of the world with healing in his wings, he comes down to the lowest place and wants to go down into those places with you, and he can because he's been there and far worse, but he also has the power to take you out. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus, and there's no one like him. Um, we were in the country, I just love this phrase, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. We were in the country um, recently, and... Um, the, you know, in the country, that's, you really want the sun to come up. When you wake up early and you're going to spend time with the Lord or whatever, do work out in the fields, it's, it's dark and it's cold. And you're waiting for the sun to come up. And when the sun comes up, the rosy-fingered dawn, is, as, uh, as Homer says in the Odyssey, I love that phrase, the sun brings light, the sun brings warmth, birds start to chirp, there's beauty. Um, and that's what this Messiah is going to do, Zechariah says. Um, I have a friend who he's put himself in a bad place because for years and for decades, his modus operandi, his response to pain, to wounding, has been cover over it and keep trucking. Hmm? What, is this, what does that produce? Does that produce a healthy soul? When we cover over something and keep moving and there's been a wound, does, does that, is that gonna get better on its own? No. It has to be exposed and light has to be shined in. Um, there was a, uh, a, a doctor, I was, in, I was skiing decades ago. I was in a small town and there was a doctor who, he just, either he didn't know what he was doing or didn't care, I think the latter, because it was like near Christmas vacation. He probably wanted to be home with his family. And he just, he was taking my stitches out with a sharp instrument, obviously, and he didn't really have good light. Like, it was terrible, actually. And um, he kept pricking me. It was like, what are you doing? This is supposed to be easy, but I feel like you're giving me stitches with no anesthetic. And uh, ow, ow. And finally, I just was like, can you please put some light on this? And he did, and it was, it was fine. Without light, it, there is no hope. But with light, a good surgeon opens you up and says, I see this, I see this cancer, I see this problem. And that's the bad news, but it's also good news because guess what? If he's good, he can get it out. 
but it has to be, the light has to shine in. And that's what happened as I ministered, and I and another, we ministered to this friend. He, we were like, we gotta address this stuff, man. This is what Jesus came for, to come to all the stuff inside of you, all the darkness, all the wounding, all the hurt, that ends up, if you cover over it, what happens? You become a kind person. You no, know, you become angry. But was he, that was just, that was just a surface level wave. The, what's causing that is the wounding down deep. So Jesus says, open up, man. I'm gonna shine my light and I have healing in my wings. I'm gonna bring you to a new day such that as, as Zechariah closes, you're gonna be like at the end, like a calf leaping from the stall. Have you ever seen a calf, a baby calf leaping from a stall when the stall is let open? Or a, or a, or a kid who just learns how to walk, walk in towards you? I mean, full of joy. That's what Jesus came to bring us, new life. And, but he wants to get down into the nasties, including my saying, yes, I'm a sinner. So we have this time of confession every Sunday. I need you. I have major issues. There's only one type of person Jesus came for, a sinner. So if you're a sinner, you're in luck. You're in a good place. He came for you. And that's what we celebrate this season. Um, so there's freedom there. Open up, and we'll have a time of, of prayer. Every time is a time for that, but we'll have express time as we do every Sunday of, of prayer with our prayer partners in the wings where we can do that after this. Um, the last point, and very brief, is just John's calling and ours. Um, and, and John, is just, he reserves sort of the last words for his own son. And what does he say about John? It's interesting that he doesn't mention him until now. It's mainly about Jesus, and, and it always is. Um, and later in Jesus' ministry, John says, and later in his ministry, right before his winds down and, and Jesus takes off, he says, John says, I must decrease, but he must increase. And would that that could be the banner over our lives, um, that Jesus would be the point of everything we do and say, not in, in, in an obnoxious at all or ostensible way, but, but when people leave our presence, they wouldn't be thinking about us. They'd be thinking about Jesus. Do I make much of me in my words and actions? When people around me, do they have the impression of me? When people around you, do they have the impression of you? Or is it the aroma of Christ? Man, that we could be as John is. And as Zachariah prophesies that he will be. Um, I, I, uh, so what's John's calling? It's, it's simply to leave, pe- it's to point people to Jesus. It's to make a way to Jesus. It's to get people to Jesus. It's when they're around John to have the aroma of this other guy that John has created for and pointing to. Um, I was around last thing, I was around a, a pastor a few years ago who was the pastor of the largest church in the Middle East, I think. He's in Cairo. His name's Pastor Sameh. Humble man. I thought he was going to be, it was sort of at the end of the, um, of the Green Revolution and the, the Arab Spring, I should say, sorry, and, and all that happening over in the Middle East. And there was just so much trouble and foment, as there always is, but especially at that time. And he came into our presence, and I thought we were told that he was going to. I, I had in my mind this picture of a man who was just wearing the weight of the world on his shoulders. But he came in fresh as, as the springtime, fresh as, fresh as a daisy, and was happy to see us and just gave us a few things and total humility. And I, some, at some point they said, somebody said, how do you, church of 7,000, 30,000 weekly, so much persecution, what's the, what's, the, what's the trick, man? Like how do you, you're responsible for all these things. And he said, man, my, it's not a trick. I just, my message is, to, when people come to me, I just kind of open up like a door and usher people to the one who I go to, Jesus. Every, Mother Teresa, every morning I, 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 I 
take my bucket deep into the deep well of Jesus. Our goal, our, our, our calling, our purpose is to lead people to him and to go to him. And he is, he is the sunrise from on high with healing in his wings. Um, so let me, let me close. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you that your word is a person. <laughs> he has a face. He has hands that have holes in them and that we always have holes in them to remind us of how much you love us and the depths that you went to to rescue us. Um, salvation has a name. Uh, Simeon held him up in the temple and in his arms at eight days old uh, and his name is Jesus. And so we worship you through Christ this morning and we thank you for sending him to us to rescue us out of darkness, the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.